Amen. David, thank you uh, so much. Well, let's uh, do exactly as David suggested. Let's open up God's Word uh, together. If you've got a Bible, uh, we're looking at Luke chapter uh, 19 today as we continue our journey towards the events of next weekend uh, as we celebrate Easter together. Uh, So do open up your Bible, switch them on, uh, whichever option you prefer. I'm going to read from verse 28 uh, through to 35, and then we'll dip back into the Scriptures in a moment. So do keep your Bibles um, open. A familiar story But I hope today that there'll be a fresh challenge for us from God's word. It says this, After Jesus had said all these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, uh, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, just simply say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and placed and put Jesus on it. Well, a farmer uh, once went to see a marriage counsellor and he said to this counsellor, my wife has told me that she wants a divorce. She says that our marriage is over. I see, said the counsellor. Does she have good grounds? Oh, I, said the farmer, about 20 acres, which her dad gave to her. No, 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 said the counsellor. I mean, does she have a really good suit? Well, of course, said the farmer, though she mainly keeps it for special occasions. I'm so sorry, said the counsellor. What I'm trying to say is, what kind of a case has she got? Oh, right, said the farmer. It's a leather one, not terribly big. Uh, I brought it for her a few years ago. Look, let's start at the beginning, the counsellor said with a sigh. What exactly is the problem with your marriage? Well, said the farmer, my wife says that I don't understand her, but I can't think why she would say that. (laughs) Misunderstanding, mix-ups, misinterpretation, confused.com. That's where we find Jesus today on his journey into Jerusalem towards the cross. We've just heard the story of how the disciples acquired a donkey. Isn't it an amazing story? Jesus says, go and you'll find this, and that's what they find. They bring the donkey to Jesus. And then comes a moment of tragedy, a moment of triumph, and to a moment of tears. Like so much of Jesus' story, as we've journeyed with it over recent weeks, it's a contrasting story today, a story of sadness and of joy, a story of good motives and bad motives, a story of light and dark, a story of strength and weakness, of faith and of fear. Now, if you've journeyed with us over this uh, Lent season, as we've got ever closer to Easter, you'll well understand by now that Jesus spent much of his life being misunderstood misunderstood oftentimes by those who were closest to him. If you're with us uh, last weekend, Kay unpacked Luke chapter 18 for us, and Jesus has just predicted his death for a third time, and the disciples, it said of them in the text, did not understand any of what Jesus was saying to them. Now, we write off the disciples sometimes, don't we? we think, oh, they're so stupid. Why didn't they get this? But actually, I've got some sympathy for the disciples, Because the text also said last weekend that they didn't understand the meaning of what Jesus says because God had actually hidden that meaning from them. I wonder why. Maybe they weren't ready to understand. Maybe Jesus was fearful that, like a politician, they might rush off and leak the story to the press. 
just maybe they weren't able to understand or actually comprehend the weight of what was about to be said to them. Sometimes it's better not to know, isn't it, if the news is too hard to digest, if the reality is too hard to understand. In fact, Luke reveals that when the disciples' minds were open, that it was seven whole chapters later when Jesus appeared to his disciples over breakfast in his post-resurrection body, and it was only with the benefit of hindsight as they looked backwards that everything started to make sense. Maybe you've discovered that in your own life, that hindsight is much clearer than foresight. The most fertile source of insight is hindsight. And that's often the way, isn't it, with things of faith. It's only as we look back in the rearview mirror that we discern and discover what God was actually doing as we were previously driving forwards. Soren Kierkegaard once said this, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Isn't that brilliant? Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Anyhow, given that his disciples weren't ready to understand and that they misunderstood, perhaps it's no great surprise to us today that the crowds of people who were gathered there in Jerusalem would misunderstand Jesus on that first Palm Sunday as well. You see, up to this point, for all of those who had ears to hear, every single speech that Jesus gave, every miracle he performed, every parable that he shared was designed to do one thing. It was designed to point forward, to say, look, I really am the Son of God. I really am the Messiah of the world. Now, of course, we have the advantage, don't we, of 2,000 years of theology and doctrine behind us. And I've got to be honest, sometimes I still don't get this whole thing of faith. What hope did the crowds have? But Jesus had been giving these subtle and sometimes not so subtle clues throughout his ministry over this three-year period of who he was. Just occasionally people understood his message, but many times, most of the time, Jesus was misunderstood. Some people who encountered Jesus said, well, he's the new Elijah, isn't he? He's a great prophet. Others said, well, he's this guy Moses. He's the Moses equivalent. What Moses did to free the people from captivity, Jesus is coming to do to free us uh, from captivity, the captivity of Rome. Others said, well, Jesus, he's just a political revolutionary. He's come to stir up the oppressive Roman authorities. The people who were healed by Jesus. I can imagine some of the lepers that we've spoken about in previous weeks, the people who were healed of their blindness, maybe said, well, he's a great doctor. He's a brilliant doctor. Others, of course, said, well, Jesus, he's just a religious nutcase. But I think we're called to wrestle with a question as we journey towards the celebrations of Easter next weekend. And the celebration is this, is who do you, or the question is this, is who do you say Jesus is? It's the most important question we can wrestle with. Who do you say Jesus is? I wonder if with me this morning you can say Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah of the world. Jesus, when he died and when he rose again, conquered death and he conquered sin. And because of that, I have a hope of eternal life in the company of God. Who do you say Jesus is today? In our story, we find triumph, we find tragedy, and we find tears. Let's read on from verse 36. It says, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place uh, where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus replied, I tell you, if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and will encircle you and they'll hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. I wonder what you expect from a king, from a monarch. I wonder how you think a, a king should behave. What mode of transport should a king or a monarch appear on? Imagine for just a moment that Queen Elizabeth decided, I know what I'll do. I'll pop down to Christchurch to celebrate my platinum jubilee in the summer this year. When I discovered uh, earlier on this week in researching this, the Queen did once come, at least once, come to Christchurch back in 1966. What a fine year that was for England, 1966. Does anyone remember 1966? Yeah, some of us. Uh, was anyone actually at the, the event when the Queen came to Christchurch? Some of us were. Fantastic. Apparently it was the year Kay was born. What a fine year. Well, this, this is what it looked like when the Queen came. You can probably spot the view there with the Priory in the background. Well, imagine for a moment the Queen came again all these years on. Crowds would line the street exactly as they did back in that day. You can imagine that the excitement would start to build. You can see miles and miles of Union Jack bunting. There would be security barriers. There would be police everywhere. Can you imagine that? A police officer in Christchurch. It does happen. Last happened in 1966. I expect the BCP would have really, really pushed the boat out with a brand new ready-to-roll red carpet, the equivalent of the palm leaves and the cloaks in Jesus' day. As the crowd were building there, there would have been people who'd rehearsed this moment for several days before and would have been stood in position for hours in excited anticipation. But then Her Majesty, when she arrives, arrives on the 1B yellow bus. She, she jumps off outside CBC and then she quietly wanders through the underpass into Saxon Square via Poundland as if she's somebody of no importance whatsoever. Can you imagine the confusion? Can you imagine the shock? It would be thoroughly out of character, wouldn't it? It would be utterly unbefitting of a monarch. But that's exactly the scene that we see here, in a sense, with Christ. He silently and he unspectacularly trots up the road on a donkey. There's the donkey. There's no pomp. There's no ceremony. It seems like the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who was involved in creation, Jesus, acts differently to the way that we might expect. How undignified. Jesus trots into an atmosphere of triumph gently on an as yet unridden donkey, a, a wonky donkey. Clumsy and clumpy, Jesus trots into town and he's weeping. How sorrowful. How sad. This is a king who comes on a borrowed donkey and yet he still gets the red carpet treatment. This is better than Oscar's night, just without any of the punches. And you see, there really is triumph in this moment. People are shouting, people are cheering, there's euphoria, there's excitement. 
You can imagine that the disciples are loving this moment. It sounds like from the text, they actually started this moment and drew attention to Jesus coming into town. But as we know, in truth, they really haven't got a clue what's going on. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, they shout. You see, my Bible calls this moment the triumphal entry. And in a sense, it was triumphant. It was triumphant because Jesus was the rightful recipient of the praises of the people. It's triumphant because Jesus really did deserve the adoration of the crowd. Jesus really was the king of the Jews. In fact, Jesus, we know, was the king of all kings. But this was a triumphal entry really only on the surface. This is a triumphal entry really just superficially. You see, in the midst of the triumph, Jesus is a misunderstood man. He's a misconstrued Messiah in a sense. There's nothing whatsoever superficial about Jesus. But the crowds here are somewhat missing the point. And yet anyone who was part of that crowd, of which there would have been many who'd known Zechariah's Old Testament prophecy, would have seen the significance of this moment. You see, it's not by chance that Jesus comes into town on a donkey. It's deliberate. Zechariah 9, verse 9, a prophecy says, See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, a wonky donkey. That's the bit they missed from the text. The foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9, 9. Centuries before Jesus came, Zechariah spoke of the Jews returning from Babylonian captivity. You see, Zechariah is a man here, isn't it, who looks at the world with foresight, not just hindsight. Here's a man who's able to see the world in a sense in fast forward, and so he shares this prophecy. Now, we might well have expected that Zechariah would write of a knight in shining armor, but he doesn't. He speaks of a king coming who is meek and who is mild and riding on a clumpy old donkey. (laughs) It's not exactly a compelling script, is it? And you know, if I were there, if I was to be really honest, I think this moment was a bit of an anticlimax, to be honest, given the response of the crowd. Why was Jesus weeping in the midst of such euphoria? You see, what we have in Jesus is not someone who's concerned about making a big entrance to impress people. First and foremost, in Jesus' mind, was his concern for the salvation of humankind. What an amazing thought that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to be facing the cross in that very city, he was thinking about me. And he was thinking about you. And he weeps in the middle of euphoria. Now the crowd here, the majority of them at least, were celebrating the arrival of a king who they thought was going to bring an instant kind of McDonald's-y, fast food-y kind of earthly peace. A king who was going to come and turf the Romans out of their land. A king who was going to come and display immense power and rule with incredible dominion. And in trots Jesus, entering in triumph, a king who would serve rather than a king who would lord himself over others. This is the king who's gentle, who's meek, who's mild, who's humble, even though the power and the glory was already rightly his even though he was already the name that was above every other name. This is our God. This is our God, the servant king. It was my heavy load, your heavy load he chose to bear. His heart was torn with sorrow. 
the hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. This is our God who trots into Jerusalem. So there's triumph in this moment, but the truth is it's really a moment of tragedy because all of that triumph is short-lived and it's surely misplaced. You know, the tragedy in this story is that Jesus knew that all of the excitement and all of the triumph were fruitless cheers and they were wasted words. The crowd in this moment have got absolutely no idea about the fate of Jesus, but Jesus did. He knew where he was going and where he was riding to. Jesus knew he was going to disappoint the people in truth in terms of their expectations. Whilst the crowd were hailing him king, Jesus knew that they'd completely missed the point. That's the tragedy. Jesus knew that the majority of those who were busy hailing him as king in this moment, in less than a week, would be those who were stood there shouting crucify at him. That's the tragedy. We mortals are so fickle, aren't we? Jesus knew that as he rode into Jerusalem, it it would ultimately end in pain and in suffering. That's the tragedy here in the story. And I guess this leaves me wrestling with the question, well, what does all that mean for me? What does that mean for you today? How do we avoid the kind of tragedy that's happening here that eventually leads to the tears of the Saviour? Well, I think it's simple, but it's probably easier said than done. The way we avoid tragedy in our relationship with Jesus is to make sure that we don't make Jesus the sideshow when he should be the main event. We should not make Jesus the sideshow when he should be the main event. And that's exactly what's happening here as he rides in to Jerusalem. It's worth reminding ourselves, isn't it, that the crowds weren't actually in Jerusalem because they'd heard that Jesus was coming to town. They were there to celebrate the Feast of Passover. If you imagine Jerusalem, imagine Christchurch, similar population. Normally there'd be about 50,000 people in Jerusalem, but during Passover, as many as 150 or 200,000 people would come in and join with the celebrations that were going on there. Imagine the food festival. Similar kind of vibe, I suspect. For seven whole days, the people were there to celebrate this historic act of God. That was their primary focus. And as Jesus rides into town, he's not the main event. He's the sideshow. He's not on the main stage. He's in venue B or venue C. You see, in this moment, the crowd were treating Jesus a bit like a a warm-up act at a concert, if you've ever been to one. The warm-up act is like a helpful distraction, someone to get you in the mood before you see the person you've actually paid your ticket price to go and see. The whole point of a warm-up act is you're not really supposed to remember them. You're supposed to remember what happens on the main stage. It's no wonder, is it, that this triumph was superficial And it was short-lived if that's how the people were treating Jesus. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, should never, ever be treated as a sideshow. Jesus is the main, he's not the starter. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. I thought this myself. Do you know what? I really struggle to think of myself joining in on that first Palm Sunday with the superficial cheers of the crowd but I wonder how often does my journey of faith make Jesus the starter and not the main? How often in my journey of faith is Jesus the sideshow and not the main event? How often do I enthusiastically worship Jesus on a Sunday but forget him by Monday? How often do we spotlight Jesus in church on a Sunday but leave him in the wings when we get to our workplace or 
to our places where we socialise. Jesus shouldn't just be prominent in our lives, he should be preeminent. Practically meaning, that means on a day-to-day basis, every single decision that we make, every choice, every aspect of my life should be determined by his lordship over my life. To be prominent means that you're important, but you're easily replaced by something else prominent. Preeminent means that you surpass all others and nothing can ever replace you. You see, Jesus ought not just be another element to my life. Christ is my life. Well, just to add to the tragedy of this story, Jesus indicates to the Pharisees in verses 39 to 40 that if the crowds weren't crying out, albeit superficially in this moment, to welcome him, then the stones would cry out. Isn't that brilliant? The inanimate, lifeless, voiceless creation knew more about what was taking place in this moment than the crowd and the Pharisees did. Ouch. Inanimate stones knew more about what was going on in this moment than the human beings did. If the stars and the rocks were made to worship, then so will I. If creation still obeys Jesus, then so will I. The triumph, which was really tragedy, then ends in tears. Verse 41, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, it says, he wept over it. Let's dwell on those words for just a moment. He wept over the city. Jesus wept. Directly translated, wept here means that Jesus wailed or he cried out aloud. This is a visceral moment here as Jesus engages with the crowd. Jesus wept. He wept over what he saw. Now, of course, we could write off Jesus' weeping. He's saying, well, Jesus knew the path of suffering that lay before him. He knew that there was a cross in front of him. That's why he was crying. I'd cry if I had to face a death that I didn't deserve. But actually, if we conclude that here in this moment, we're utterly missing the point. You see, Christ's tears show just how much he loved the people who were there in that city. Jesus says, if only you'd recognised this day, if only you'd recognised, if only you'd have the foresight to work out what's going on in this moment. You see, Jesus' tears are not crocodile tears. These are not quiet sobbing, but these are loud, visceral, wailing tears over people like you and me. Jesus weeps for you and for me. Jesus' heart is broken when we miss the point. Jesus' heart is broken when we offer empty worship. Jesus' heart is broken when we worship him on Sunday but forget him by Monday. You know, I think Jesus' tears tell us something very profound about the compassion and the love that Jesus has for humankind. Can you see from this story today just how much Jesus loves you and how much he loves me? Paul said, even whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. That's the love of Jesus for you and for me, that he weeps over our sin and our brokenness. But he doesn't just weep. He goes to Jerusalem. He faces the cross. He rises again in order that there can be a way made that we can stay in relationship with God. Even whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
The application of all this for us today, well, God demands a response, doesn't he? His visit demands a response. I wonder if today you can add your voice to mine in saying that Jesus is Lord of Lords, he's King of Kings, and he's the only Saviour. It demands a response. There's another challenge from this text, not to let the stones cry out because we don't cry out. The challenge, perhaps, is to not let the rocks do the job that we should be doing. If the stars and the rocks were made to worship, then so will I. There's a challenge for us not to just make Jesus prominent in our lives, but to make sure that Jesus is preeminent. God of creation There at the start Before the beginning of time With no point of reference You spoke to the dark And fleshed out the wonder of life And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars amaze and worship so light, I can see a heart in it.
chased down my heart through all of my failure and pride. On the hill you created, the light of the world, abandoned in darkness to die. And as you speak, a hundred billion fairies disappear Well, you lost your life so I could find it here and if you left the grave behind you so I I can see your heart and everything you've done into space and then stretched out his hands in surrender on the cross a choice to worship a choice to praise a choice to live for the king of kings and the lord of lords so will I I wonder today who do you say Jesus just a prophet? Is he more than just a, a good healer? Is he more than just a life accessory? Jesus doesn't want to just be prominent in our lives. He, want to be, he wants to be preeminent. Nothing can take his place. Jesus is today. If the rocks, if the oceans, if the mountains were made to praise, then so will I. As we journey into Holy Week, it just seems like such a good time, doesn't it, to commit our lives to Jesus, Jesus afresh. I said in the first service, you know, I'm probably in my life I've made about a thousand commitments to Jesus. with me you'll make a fresh commitment to Jesus 
thousand and first, perhaps, that you've made, or maybe this will be your first, it doesn't matter. Every act, every word, every story told was about pointing people towards this relationship with King of Kings, with the Saviour of the universe, with the Messiah. And Jesus makes an invitation to you and me today to be friends with God. I wonder if you'll accept the invitation. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. thank you that on that Palm Sunday you rode into Jerusalem to face the cross. Thank you, Lord, that as you were nailed to that cross, as you died, as you rose again, death was defeated. I thank you that sin was defeated in that very act. And I choose you this day, Jesus, to be my Lord and Saviour, afresh or maybe even today for the first time. I choose to worship you. I choose to follow you. I commit my life to you. The whole of creation was made to worship you. Then so will I. I wonder if you can make that choice today. be those who commit afresh to follow Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Let's be those who pray look Lord this Easter time would it be about more than just raising hands in worship? Would it be about more than just a Sunday? But this is Easter time Lord we just invite you to reveal yourself to us afresh. We pray Holy Spirit come. Holy Spirit, come, fill us full to overflowing, I pray, as we commit our lives to you. Salvation is found in no other name than the name of Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is today? I say today he's King of Kings, he's Lord of Lords, he's Saviour of the universe. Lord, thank you. Our hope is found in no one else. Bless you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing out a great hymn of declaration. That truth that salvation is found in no other name. In Christ alone, my hope is found.